Welcome to Deep Breath In, the podcast from the BMJ, sponsored by Medical Protection, where we tackle the everyday challenges of being a GP. In today's episode, we're looking at the findings of the Independent Medicines and Medical Devices Safety Review, considering what these mean for GPs, and wonder if patients' trust in us is misguided. We also ask, is mistrust a cause of racial inequalities in healthcare? We'll hear what you relax to and deep breath out. It's going to be a great episode, and you can trust me, I'm a doctor. You can cut that bit out, <laughs> That was awesome. <laughs> Thanks, Jenny. <laughs> I'm Tom Nolan, uh, GP in London and clinical editor for the BMJ. And Jenny is with me here as usual. Hi, Jenny. Hi, I'm Jenny Rasanathan. I'm a family medicine doctor, mostly based in Phnom Penh, Cambodia, and a clinical editor for the BMJ. But our other regular NavJoy can't be with us this time, uh, but we've got a ready replacement from the education team at the BMJ in Emma Cartwright. Emma, hi. Uh, hi, I'm Emma Cartwright, and I am one of the patient editors at the BMJ, um, and I sit within the education team. Hi, Emma. Thank you for uh, joining us today and being being with us. Um and your role at BMJ, and um, particularly, there's a series called Why Pits, which um, we all think is like really hilariously titled. But can, can you tell us more about that? Yeah, exactly. So um, the Why Pits is actually the What Your Patient Is Thinking series. Um, so that is a series which is all um, written by patients, and it's kind of very broad in what they cover. But um, mainly, it's sort of patients writing about their experience in healthcare and really getting to down to what they want their healthcare professionals to know about what mm. it's really like to be a patient. So things like, um, I can remember, like, don't call me mum, when, when yep. you know, we sometimes <laughs> say say that to our patients, uh, and don't ice me. I think that's another one of my favourites. <laughs> and, and today we're talking about trust. Um, and is trust a theme that comes up a lot in the Y pits? Yeah, definitely. It's something that comes up very, very often in the Y pits because I think a lot of the the Y pits that we get focus around the sort of communication um, between healthcare professionals. I think that's also something that comes out as being really important to patients. Um, and I think often in the Y pits, our authors sort of share that even though their healthcare professionals might not be able to give them specific answers or be able to know everything that's going on with them. The most important thing to build that trust with them is having really good communication. Yeah, yeah. Um, and you wrote recently, just a, a, maybe last week or something in the BMJ, about um, your own experience and and how that maybe affected your trust. Yeah, would you be able to tell us more about that? Yeah, definitely. So um, when the UK went into lockdown, I was eight months pregnant. Um, So that was, (laughs) uh, yeah, an interesting time. Um, And I have type one diabetes. So I had spent the last sort of three or four months of before lockdown planning with my healthcare team, everything that was going to happen, particularly with my diabetes management through Mm. the sort of induction, delivery and post sort of few days and weeks um, after having my baby Um, and then of course we went into lockdown and unfortunately that meant that when I was in the hospital to have my baby a lot of that was kind of put to one side a lot of our Mm. planning um, and sort of shared decision planning that we'd made Um, so I think that was really difficult um, to to kind of have that sort of trust in in the healthcare team that I had in the hospital because we'd 
put lots of work in um, and had to really sort of set out what I was comfortable with and what they were comfortable with. Um, and that was kind of all sort of put to one side because it was obviously extremely difficult circumstances. Um, and, you know, not only was that challenging with with the, with the birth um, of my baby, but in the kind of weeks and months after I had my baby, all of the sort of normal services, care and support that's in place for new parents has, has obviously not been around. So we haven't had a huge amount at all um, of support from, you know, community healthcare, mm. our GP and anything like that. So, yeah, I think it definitely has impacted my sort of trust. with. Yeah. With and, and so having less contact and, and the contact you have been having hasn't been quite right, would you say? Or yeah, I think um, anytime we have tried to kind of contact with issues or concerns, um, I think people have, our healthcare professionals have been very sort of clear that they can't see us in person. And I think sometimes that's led to being them sort of feeling like they can't deal with our problems and they can't deal with mm-hmm. our concern over the phone. So it's been quite, um, you know, whenever we've raised issues, it's kind of been addressed in a sentence or two on the phone and then kind of hung up and never sort of followed up, which has been challenging i think oh dear well um, challenging yeah how's and how's things now how's the baby and uh how are you getting on yeah he's really good we've i mean really we've been lucky that um things have been fine and we've managed to sort of figure things out for ourselves and the sort Mm. of challenges that we have had around feeding and things like that um so he is doing really well so we are very lucky great well um thank you for sharing that with us and um and I think it leads on well to the, the our first topic today, which is um, looking at um, the Independent Medicines and Medical Devices Safety Review, which is um, a bit of a mouthful, but uh, and often referred to as the, the Cumberledge Report, and that was published uh, early in July. Uh, this was an independent review uh, commissioned in 2018 by the then Health Secretary for England, Jeremy Hunt, to assess the use of vaginal mesh, uh, sodium valproate and primados. I was familiar with the controversy about vaginal mesh yeah. um, for pelvic organ prolapse, um, but I hadn't heard of the um, of the Primidas before. Yeah. Can you tell us a little bit more about that report and why it was yeah. commissioned? Yeah, so I think it came out from um, uh, an MMA. I'm sure we'll know a bit, bit about this, but a lot of um, patient groups and um, particularly around vaginal mesh and a lot of the controversies around. Um, sort of side of small complications of that, which were going unrecognized. Um, so this is um, a mesh which um, used in transvaginal tape operations for for pelvic organ prolapse and urinary incontinence. And um, and well, the report goes into a lot of detail about how patients uh, were trying to inform their doctors about complications and so not being listened to, not being believed, mm. um, and and really sort of coming up against brick walls when when trying to raise these concerns. Uh, valproate, which in, when taken in pregnancy um, is associated with birth defects, it, it is also, was also included in the review. Um, and now whenever I try and prescribe valproate in, in my practice, you know, we get these big warnings. You have to kind of sign away your um, your career if you get it wrong. So, so <laughs> things have changed there. Um, and then Primados, does, do either of you know about Primados? No, I hadn't heard of that before. What, what is that? Yeah, I'm not even sure if I'm pronouncing it right. But um, so this was a, a pill. Um, uh, used in the 60s and 70s um, that contained uh, two hormones, which uh, basically you took it to as a pregnancy test. And hmm. if 
Mm. You took it and you uh, it didn't induce menstruation, then you're pregnant. And if you <laughs> uh, and if you took it and you menstruated, then then you weren't. This was before the development of a cheap over the counter urine pregnancy test. Yes, and apparently before oh. that, according to, to a report I was reading on Sky News, the only way you could do this was um, by injecting women's urine into toads. <laughs> And what, see if they turned purple? I mean, what what were the toes supposed to do? So I believe that uh, injecting the the toad with urine, uh, if if the woman was pregnant, um, would induce them to produce more eggs or something like that. Uh, Well, uh, see how far science has come. Exactly, yes, yes. Uh, And then it became um, apparent that this this, this pill was associated with, with birth defects. Uh, and it was withdrawn how in the horrible, How horrible. Like, by the way, you're pregnant and you've just taken something to harm yeah. your child. It's uh, it's terrible, isn't it? So yeah. So that, that report was was looking specifically at these uh, three um three things which affect women and uh and where yeah, there's uh, I guess a, a huge amount of um concern from patients that that they weren't being listened to. Emma, I don't know if you do have you been following this report much? Um, a, a little bit. I suppose the, the thing that I sort of take out from the report is actually, it's as you say, Tom, it's that, that these patients weren't listened to when they were voicing their concerns. But I think the big thing for me was that this has all kind of come out because these patients found each other. And then when they started to talk to one another, they started to realize that their symptoms and the complications that they were having were very common amongst people. And I think one of the big calls from the patient groups with this report is that that is much widely more communicated in between, you know, healthcare professionals, but also because that, you know, that's how, that's how this was kind of came out was that patients met one another and started to realize that, this was much more common. Should we hear from our first interviewee, who Emma, you, you mentioned about patients actually only really realising there was a problem when they started to talk to each other, and, and that was her experience. That's coming up after this from our sponsor. When you're a GP, you're not just nine to five. Being a GP is part of who you are, whatever the time of day. So when it comes to your indemnity, you need protection you can turn to whenever you need it. With new challenges always arising, we're here with expert medico-legal advice available 24-7 in an emergency. And because we're discretionary, we've got the flexibility to protect you for a wide range of situations with individual support that's tailored to your needs. During the current crisis, we know GPs need this flexible support more than ever. Visit medicalprotection.org to find out how we are helping our members through this challenging time, including policy changes, extended membership benefits, and medico-legal advice. Now let's go back to that interview with Karen Preeter. Yeah, um, well, I'm Karen Preeter. I am one of the admin team in Sling the Mesh. Um, I live in Wales, so I also have a subgroup in Wales. Um, I joined Sling the Mesh, I think it was about 2016. That would be two years after I had my mesh implant. Hmm. And can you t- maybe start by telling us more about your experience? 
Yeah, I had a TVTO in January 2014. Um, knew instantly something was wrong, but I didn't know what. Mm-hmm. Um, just that I was in huge amounts of pain straight from waking up. Um, and it, it kind of went along that lines. I was still, I was totally numb the wares about what could be wrong. You know, why was I in pain? I was asking my consultant, his registrar, you know, mm. what, what's going on. And I just didn't seem to be getting any answers. Um, I then ended up being obviously sent home. Uh, what should have been an overnight stay ended up as eight nights. And I was sent home with a bag of medication, um, catheters and crutches. Mm. It was just, you know, the other staff, um, orthopedics got involved, physio got involved. um, But I was sent home and I was still none the wiser. And that kind of went on for quite a few months. um, Mm. And went for my, it was about six, six to eight week checkup with my consultant and he was like you're still on crutches what's going on so I explained to him there and he said he doesn't know why this has happened and then I spent two years just being referred to every person possible but each one saying I don't understand your symptoms I don't know where they come from I need mm. to somebody else and, and at what point did you did you then begin to feel listened to was there somebody then that you met or was it when you started talking to other people who've been through this when well, did you start to feel that it was start, it was once I saw um I actually saw a Sky News interview um, and Kath was on it from Sling the Match yeah and I thought oh look and I read it and I thought oh my life that that sounds just like me so once I'd read that I went online looked up Sling the Match joined their support group and it was then that I kind of, because I was researching into it and seeing all these other women saying, yeah, I've had this problem and symptoms were very, very similar, that I then was a bit more forceful when I went to see any of my clinicians. You know, I'd say, look, this, I've got this information. And even with that, it would still be downplayed. But because of knowing that information, it gave me a bit of empowerment to be able to say, listen, you're not listening to me. You know, this is what's wrong. Um, you know, somebody has to be able to help. And what, what help did you get? Have you had help? Well, yes and no. It took about three years, um, three or four years before I actually saw somebody that could help me at a mesh centre. Mm. Obviously, then, when I first had the operation, they were not even thought of. Once it became more into the public eye and the review was, like said, to be done, um, and then they started having these dedicated mesh centres, that was when I managed to actually see a specialist that deals with mesh complications. Okay. One of the troubling things is, is getting to that mesh centre. It isn't easy to be referred especially if you're not being believed. So I want to ask you what effect this has had on, on like your relationship with, with your GP, with other doctors or with healthcare professionals generally. Um, you, know, you talk about n- not really having been listened to and believed. Does that make you sort of trust your doctor less? Um, with my GP, I am 
so lucky. I didn't actually because my problem started straight from the operation. I was always I was already like within the consultant system. So, yeah, so I didn't see my GP straight away. Yeah, was still I was chasing referrals because they were they were just like I I wasn't getting them and the appointments through. But I thought I'm just gonna have to go and see my GP. Mm. Now he's been my GP for years, and I was so happy and grateful that he believed me the first time I went in to see him. Um, I explained what I, I explained in a nutshell that I was waiting for this referral, but it's been like nine months and this was going out of area as well. And he just sat me down. We chatted at length about what the problem was. I mentioned Sling the Mesh. He actually went on his on his computer and Googled it there and then just so he could have a bit of knowledge. Um, so he's been really supportive of me. I actually I actually cried when my GP kind of just went, right, okay, tell me what's happening. Because nobody had said, what do you think it is? And it was just a massive, massive relief. Um, and, you know, he didn't have to do much. Listened, and that's all we want. So I do know with my GP that if I go to him and I, I'm at a sticking point in like the wider circle, so to speak, if he's in the middle and the wider circle, I've, I've got to a sticking point. He is very good at, you know, writing to whoever needs to be, chasing up referrals. And that does make a huge difference to know that if I'm stuck on one respect, I can see my GP and just go, even if it's what do you advise I do? Because I appreciate, you know, once you're seeing consultants, your GP's limited on what they can then do, aren't they? Um, you know, but to have my GP understand me, I know I can always go to him. And that gives me some hope that eventually, you know, things will get, get better, that I'll see the people that I need to see. You know, it's been six years now. Um, and I'm not really any further forward, but, you know, it's getting there. So really, uh, I guess, a powerful account there of um, her struggle really to be heard, um, but with a nice sort of twist for, for I guess, for the GP listeners that... Um, you know, actually, the, the GP has sort of played a really pivotal role there, I, I feel, to, to helping her. Hearing about people who have endured chronic pain um, and to fight that uphill battle toward getting the care that they need for a subjective symptom that no one else can ever really truly understand in, in that person's body, and to have that be going on for six years... It, it it's just awful like how horrible and i think yeah you're right tom like at least she has someone who can use their voice in the medical system which may have a little bit more sway or a little bit more power to really be an advocate for her the bit where she talked about the first appointment with the gp where she was heard and she said she um she sort of left the surgery shaking and, and so sort of sat in her car just mm -hmm. um 
she described how she just couldn't believe that somebody had actually listened to her, like mm. a, a medical professional had listened to her for the first time and but believed her. It made me think that, uh, you know, we have these consultations and we, you know, within seconds we're on to the next patient. We sort of almost, sort of, we have to forget, you know, because we, we've got to move on and our, with our focus. But uh, uh, you don't really stop to think often how, how the patient is feeling and how that influences the rest of their day and their 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 life. Um, Emma, is, are these themes that are familiar to, to the patient voices that you hear, hear about in your work? Or yeah, to you definitely. personally, maybe? Definitely. I think the the kind of the experience of sort of having to feel like you're battling against the health system. Um, and I think the thing that we always forget is that, that these women and many other patients, when they're having this battle, are also really not feeling well and are in a lot of pain. And, you know, it's really difficult to kind of have that sort of motivation to keep going with this. So um, I think that kind of having just having a, a healthcare professional just listen to you and just acknowledging that you're in pain or that you're suffering or that you're struggling is so incredibly important. And I think often our, our WIPE authors will will say that, you know, just having a healthcare professional saying, I completely understand that must be so hard and so difficult, but I'm here for you and I listen and I hear you is actually really important for them. And it makes such a big difference for them. As I was listening to Karen, I was thinking about how easy it is and maybe even, you know, instinctive in some respect to kind of brush off or not go into a lot of detail or kind of shrug our shoulders when we don't know what's going on or when we don't know what to do. You know, I think there's this expectation that when someone comes to see us, we need to provide an answer. And it's too easy to forget that sometimes people just want to be heard and our job in those moments is to bear witness. So the things that she was talking about there, so making a list of them, you know, believing the patient, um, uh, time, it sounds like the GP, you know, just made time, whatever happened to the rest of his day, I'm not sure, but, uh, you know, he decided that was the time he needed to spend with, with the patient, Googling it, you know, that kind of sharing your, your, your lack of knowledge in a, in a sort of open way, which um, tends to go down well, as you can see there. Um, and being like in the middle of that circle of care or, or whatever the mm. kind of latest term for that that is. Um, it strikes me that those are all like, that kind of sums up what we think of as like a general practice. Um, but uh, none of that, in my view, is really incentivized in the structures of general practice in the UK. Um, we, we sort of talked about this before, Jenny, didn't we, with um, uh, uh, in one of our episodes that, you know, we, we need to have a structure which enables us to do this. Uh, and and so sort of the report here was very critical, saying, you know, G, you know, GPs aren't listening, they're ignorant, using terms like that. But um, maybe it's the structural things that need to change and then we, to allow us to, to stop being ignorant and to have more time mm. with our patients. I think there's definitely a piece to that, you know, certainly, um, you know, in the United States, there's a lot of conversation around the reimbursement of primary care services, because it is primary care doctors and GPs who do end up seeing a lot of folks um, with, you know, who who tend to just want to who have these kind of ongoing relationships and who value um, going to a trusted provider to update them with things like this, for example. Um, so I think there is something there in terms of how can we financially incentivize doctors and practices 
um, to see these patients, to have longer time with them, to make sure that they are feeling listened and heard. The other thing I was going to say, though, is that we hear about a lot of these things. And certainly this report talks about these three examples, which all relate to kind of women's bodies and sexual and reproductive health. And I think that's a piece of it, too, right? Like there is a gender aspect um, about and, and a history here of women not being listened to, um, even more so black women not being listened to women of color not being listened to, um, their complaints being brushed aside or kind of um, poo-pooed, not taken seriously. And there's always been this um, element of control around women's bodies as well from, from professional hierarchies, professional bodies, things of that nature. So um, I think when you talk about structural elements that need to change, I think it's both in terms of our clinical practice, but then also on a broader social level. Well, that's uh, perfect, Jenny, because that takes us right on to our next interview. Uh, tell us more about that. I had a long conversation with Rhea Boyd. She is a pediatrician in California, um, as well as a racial health activist. And she and I talked about trust between um, a predominantly white healthcare workforce in the United States and patients of color. And what those dynamics mean in terms of health outcomes. Mistrust and patient mistrust in particular has been a bit of a distraction in studies and analysis of racial health inequities. What I mean by that is one of the primary causes, right? A fundamental cause of disease including racial health inequities, is racism. And yet, we as a field have spent decades belaboring patient trust as a potential cause of racial health inequities. The result of that is that we now have countless interventions that aim, and we say this in the paper, that aim as a primary or secondary outcome to improve patient trust as if that would ever narrow the gap. It will not. Right? We need to say clearly, it's just untrue. The barrier between black patients, for example, and equitable outcomes is not their own trust. The barrier is structural and interpersonal racism that shapes their exposures to things that put them at risk for disease and shapes their likelihood of receiving the care they need to be well. Like that is the mechanism. It's not trust. And when we confuse the direction of that relationship and we instead say, oh, but maybe trust is one of the drivers, we then obscure the true drivers, which are structural inequalities and structural racism. That isn't to say that patient trust doesn't drive healthcare utilization behaviors because it absolutely does. It's to say that what we have to focus on to then change those healthcare utilization behaviors is getting rid of structural inequalities and racism in medicine. And then the result of that will be that patients have greater trust. Just today, somebody on my Twitter said today that instead of talking about patient mistrust, we should talk about violated trust. And I think that person was right. We have to switch the direction. It's not that patient mistrust is driving something. We are doing things that violate people's trust. We need to identify those things and remedy them. And when we do, then we can see if patients trust us. In your eyes and in your understanding, like what 
what role do microaggressions between physicians and their patients play in terms of violating that trust? Um, is is that meaningful for patients, or is it more like, oh, you, like you you committed a medical error, and and that's where I'm going to lose trust? So first, I think it might be helpful to zoom out a bit and make some definitions so that we know the levels that we're talking about. So microaggressions are like, oh yeah, microaggressions are at a level of interpersonal racism. It exists between like two individuals. Macroaggressions or structural racism lives at the systems and population level, right? Where population level exposures systematically shape risks for groups. I say that to say microaggressions, including um, implicit bias, is not the driver of structural health inequities. It is not. And because it's not, implicit bias training will do nothing to address structural inequities. It's baked into the system. What structural means is it's like the bricks and mortar of our system. It's the policies, it's the laws, it's the cultural norms, the ways people tend to do things and they systematically do it that way every time that renders certain communities more vulnerable to adverse outcomes. So we as a field have to be more attuned to what those structural drivers are and where the levers are to change them because sometimes we're participating in those structural drivers without recognizing it but that's different than implicit bias can you say a little bit more about um you know what impact the interpersonal dynamics has in terms of broader racism in health and structural racism i'm so glad you asked that question because the two things do overlap and compound each other So Mm -hmm. if we know that there's broader structural drivers that render populations or groups of people more vulnerable to these adverse outcomes, then anytime in an individual encounter, somebody is also treated inequitably without dignity when they receive their care, Mm -hmm. that Mm -hmm. also contributes to those larger population level inequities. It's just not the core Mm -hmm. driver in the same way that these systematic Mm -hmm. factors are. I think Mm -hmm. a good example is some of the pain research, you know, that shows that Mm. even down to children, even for things as excruciating as broken bones, that they, based on their race, are not offered pain medications at the same rate, you know, as other folks. I think that research is rooted in individual provider bias. Some of those studies, um, you know, give the implicit association test to try to determine the clinician's individual level of, for example, like anti-black bias, and then Mm -hmm. see how they respond in clinical scenarios or vignettes when then they're asked to choose what pain medication would you give. Um, Mm -hmm. And so there is a link between um, implicit bias or anti-black bias and the actual care individual clinicians give individual Mm -hmm. patients. And that absolutely hurts Mm -hmm. people. It contributes to their further pain. In terms of the pain studies, it also contributes potentially to an underdiagnosis of other, you know, significant illnesses if we are constantly mm-hmm. underappreciating what folks of color's pain level actually are. So I don't, mm-hmm. 
I don't say what I said before because I want, I'm not saying it so that people think, oh, implicit bias doesn't matter at all. I think it is important for clinicians to think about, you know, are you treating every patient you see with the honor and dignity that they deserve? I think we absolutely should Mm -hmm. be thinking about that. I just think it cannot be the only thing we're thinking about because as we've spent so much time focused on it, we've missed the largest drivers, things that we could change that would be impervious to how an individual physician actually feels in the moment. Um, But it's not to say that how individual physicians feel doesn't land on patients in violent ways. I think it Mm. definitely does. Mm. As there has been a broader political reawakening to racism, I've seen a lot of calls for people to prove that they're committed in the long term and not be performative. And so as we try to embark on this work, um, I wonder if you have any thoughts about, you know, what it's going to take. I think it's a really great question, especially for this moment right now, because I think I have experienced people's feelings of white guilt and the downstream effect of what that has on folks that you're asking for absolution. So I think this is really important that people better understand. What it takes to be a real anti-racist and not just a performative one is to actually surrender your advantage. That means if you are living in a segregated neighborhood and sending your kids to segregated schools, you marching about Black Lives Matters is less effective than you actually ensuring that Black Lives can live next to you as neighbors and go to your kid's school. And it's really important that you that we put it in those concrete terms like This is about the spaces you move in the world as white people that have been made safer for you by making them less safe for Black, Latinx, Indigenous, and folks of color in general. One way I've tried to articulate that is to quote Professor Leah Wright Rigger. What she said is that Black people lack sanctuary in the United States. And she's absolutely right, right? Black people lack sanctuary from the intersecting forms of violence that threaten and shorten our lives. We don't have sanctuary in schools. Our kids are surveilled by police in schools. They experience the physical violence of policing in their classrooms. We don't have sanctuary in hospitals. Police often man the doors or armed security guards man the doors to ERs. Patients who come in as being actively incarcerated are often shackled during their visit, including pregnant women who are then shackled during delivery, right? We are not safe even in hospitals. We do not have sanctuary in our own homes. Breonna Taylor was shot sleeping, right? A Tatiana Jefferson shot in her own home with a child. Like we are not safe in public spaces. And so if there's nowhere we can go, then white people have to think about why is that? And how do white folks contribute to spaces where we don't have sanctuary? How do white folks call for police in schools? How do we call for police in hospitals? How do we directly call the police like Amy Cooper when we feel uncomfortable around somebody else who we don't know? Like these These are the types of actions that people have to interrogate if they want their anti-racism to not just be performative. As I said to Rhea after that conversation, the words that she quoted about how Black people in the United States lack 
sanctuary um, really hit me hard. Um, I think it was in my first or second year of training in the Bronx, I was seeing an adolescent black male just for a routine, like well person visit. Um, And I, at the time, was spending a lot of time kind of closing visits, talking with people about preventive health care and like the greatest risks to their health going forward. And I was kind of making some offhand casual comment to him about how important it was to get regular exercise to protect his cardiovascular health going forward. And he was like, wait, wait, wait. Yeah, but I'm RWB. I was like, wait, what? (laughs) Um, He was like, but that's running well black. I can't do that. I'm going to get chased by the cops. And oh, I was like mortified that I had been so ignorant to just casually throw that out there. And then like try to take that on board while saying, well, and I think I stupidly said something like, uh, yeah, but if you're wearing running gear, like you're going to be fine. And now, you know, and now that the tragic um, death of Ahmad Arbery has been made so public, you know, that was clearly just like a really stupid thing to say, because we know that no matter um, what Black people wear in terms of signaling their intentions or their activities, it doesn't protect them. Um, again, they lack sanctuary. They cannot move and exist safely in public spaces. Mm. We've had so right, I'm right. not sure... So I'm not sure he got anything out of that visit with me. <laughs> yeah. You know? You got from um, him. Yeah, that was an important I, thing. I certainly you- did. But but that's the wrong direction, right? Like I as a provider am not supposed to be is gaining or reaping advancement of my career mm. as a result of a flawed appointment for him. But is that something we need to maybe, you know, just more generally is don't, that we need to see our patients as people who teach us all the time. And um, you know, he was teaching you there about um, your own kind of, I guess, biases. But um, but we learn from patients. Emma, I just wonder if you have any thoughts on that. Really, I think that's um, something that's becoming much more apparent is that our relationships with healthcare professionals really is a two-way street. And I suppose I always see this as somebody who lives with a chronic condition in terms of I'm an expert in my own health and in my own life. And, and what I bring to our consultation is just as important as what my healthcare professional mm. brings to our consultation. And I think what this that interview you did, Jenny, really highlighted for me was that that's not just the case in just our own healthcare. That's also the same in, in our own experiences, in our lives, and, and in our own biases. So I do think it's really important that we see our relationships as a two-way street, you know, and, and we have been talking about t- trust in this podcast. And for me, the only way that we can build trust is that we have a two-way conversation and that it is two-sided, you know, no trusting relationship is, is one-sided. So mm. I think that is really important. So we can see that that uh, relationship between the doctor and patient and that two-way street is is so important for building trust you know between the doctor patient but um but as you were saying in the first part of the interview there that um we need to be looking at the structural biases and and finding the levers to to change that um i, I guess i'm thinking what as we talked in our last episode you know, what are those levers and um where, where do we go with that 
I think that's a really important question. And I think, you know, you've, you've got it right. And Ria was talking in this health affairs blog specifically about um, when scientific studies or clinical research uncovers a disparity in health outcomes between white populations and black populations or brown populations um, that oftentimes the scientists or researchers identify a cause for their findings as patient mistrust. Like, oh, it's because of patient mistrust that Black patients had X X outcome compared to Y outcome in white patients. And her point is that mistrust is not the driver of population level health disparities, but that it has been used as a way to avoid getting to the root of those of those population level health inequalities, which is structural racism. So I think she has a lot of suggestions about what we can do. I'll share with our listeners the uh, piece she wrote recently in the New England Journal, where she goes into other ways that we can combat structural racism in medicine, including desegregating the healthcare workforce, making structural racism and understanding the health impacts of structural racism, a professional medical competency, um, measuring and continuing to measure outcomes within and between different populations. Um, So there are a number of different uh, ideas that she writes about there. So think about our role as GPs in terms of um, tackling or helping to tackle this issue of structural racism. Um, and also reflecting on the the findings of the the Cumberledge report, it feels like we've we've got this great position in the centre of the circle. You know, we can advocate for patients um, in a very unique way, um, but also so linking that into making more structural change than perhaps we're used to. And I, I, maybe we don't, or I don't think of that so much as part of my role. You know, it's all about the doctor-patient relationship in the room, I suppose, or on the phone now with the patient. Uh, and maybe as we look to what, what our role is going to be in the future, uh, it's more and more about feeding that into a, a, the broader healthcare mm. picture. I think in the UK, at least, there, there is a role there and, and the GPs mm. can, well, we are sort of supposedly at the heart of our, uh, of those with the, the, the CCG structure. Um, Emma, is this what patients want from their GPs? Do they want us to have a bigger role in, in, in changing structures and improving uh, yeah I I think um, as patients we really see that GPs do have a key role um, in in terms of supporting patients in terms of what we're advocating for so I think in in the example of of the MESH campaign um, I think when the the patients got together having GPs as their sort of advocates within that has also been hugely influential because whether we like it or not you know GPs you have a, a much deeper insight you bring your own expertise to to these challenges that that we're trying to to kind of fight against or or trying to um change um so i do think gps have a huge role and i think as patients what we really would want is is our gp to support that and and to do what they can and within their own capacity but also to bring their own expertise to that because as we've said previously we there's a there's a big acknowledgement that we both bring different things to the table um, and i think the the more that the broader skills and expertise and knowledge that we have the the, mm. the better that is for change yeah and maybe uh just going back to our our episode theme for a moment it's not that um 
there's a lack of trust. It's that we, we maybe need to use that trust in a different ways. Well, I think the other thing to say is that we've heard over and over again that, you know, it takes time and repeated visits and um, kind of going through life with each other um, with your patients to develop that trust, just as it does in any friendship or relationship. Um, and, and, you know, being conscious of then how we approach you know, violations or keeping, as you said, Emma, keeping those lines of communication open. Yeah, definitely. I feel like um, as sometimes it's, it's sort of seen as a, a difficult relationship because as a patient, when I come in to see my GP or my health professional, there's a sort of expectation that I will share all of the detail <laughs> elements of my life. Um, and, I, and I do that in confidence. But I think that's also very difficult to do when my, the healthcare professional that I'm speaking to is, is, is sort of closed off um, and sees herself in this very professional role and they can't kind of share what their experience is or what's important to them or what they've gone through. And I think sometimes some of the most important kind of conversations that we have as patients is actually just finding some sort of common ground or just have, knowing that our GP or our healthcare professional is also human because I think sometimes there is a, a dis disconnect between that. Um, and I think that's hugely important in terms of trust. And I think, you know, going forward, I think, I hope that that's something that we will, you know, continue to develop. And this really reminds me of our second episode where we talked to Iona Heath about trust and fear uh, in particular. But um, she talked to us about building up that credit with patients through those interactions, even those small interactions where, like Emma says, you know, you maybe give a little bit of yourself and and just build up a, a normal human relationship. Um, so if anyone hasn't uh, listened to that yet, uh, please go to wherever you get your podcasts from and uh, and that's on the Deep Breath In channel. And please, whilst you're there, subscribe and, and rate us too if you can. So that's the end of the episode uh, today. I uh, hope your listeners enjoyed it. Uh, thank you to Jenny. Thank you. And Emma, how was it your first time with us? It was very enjoyable. Thank you for having me. <laughs> Thank you. Please she has to back. say that, Tom. Yeah. I know. <laughs> um, uh, thank you to Karen and Ria, uh, and thank you as always to Childcare the band for uh, their music. Uh, and now it's time for our deep breath out. Um, so Emma, as you're new to the show, I'll explain that to you. Um, so this is the the idea is that for GPs, you know, we have this idea of housekeeping so how to sort of maintain your well-being in between patients or afterwards to, to keep your keep your you on a level i suppose uh, so we're asking for people who listen to the show to tell us what they do or uh what they like to enjoy to to relax is there anything you do to relax at, at the end of the day at the end of the day editing wipe it's um i i do enjoy listening to a good podcast i have oh, to yeah. say <laughs> Any, she has to them? say that. Yeah, time. apart from this one, yeah. <laughs> yes, deep breath in every, deep every breath day. In. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> wow, it's going to supposed to be a dream come true for you today then. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so today we, we have uh, a deep breath out from uh, Kartik Moda, who um, lots of listeners in the UK at least may, may know as Tico. Um, he set up a group called, on Facebook called Tico's GP Group many years ago, probably about 10 years ago. 
that was one of the first um, sort of GP online social networking forum and, and still very active today. So Kartik or Tico um, has suggested a lullaby from uh, The Legend of Zelda. So computer game fans will, will know this well. recognize this because my brother used to play computer games when my sister and I were like I don't know like we were so young we were just like biting at his heels this is very nostalgic even for me 